You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. It's Sunday, July 31st, the fourth and final week in our Without Walls series, featuring real life pastors from around the region. Jim Putman from the original Real Life Ministries in Post Falls closes out the series, encouraging us to approach every day as living temples bound together in community. You know, um, years ago, it started with Aaron and I, and I have to tell you, uh, Aaron was just 24 years old, just newly married, and uh, I had three kids, and, and he, he actually told me that I, uh, you know, we were working in a church in Oregon together, and he said, we need to go plant a church, and he kind of talked me into it, and he, he said, Jim, you're a big girl, you're chicken, <laughs> and he knew that would, that would do it, and uh, uh, you know, I just said, well, you're 24, and you, you, got, you don't have a family, you don't have to worry about it, and it, anyway, he kept pushing, and sure enough, we went, and God's just done amazing things. Uh, I just want you to know, the church in Spokane, I was just there last week, this church was one of the largest contributors to that church being planted. So now all the different churches work together to plant the next church. We're all working together right now to plant a church in Houston, Texas. So you guys are being a part of planting a church in Houston, Texas right now, getting ready to launch in October. I, I hope you don't get tired of seeing God work because it's, uh, it's just, it's pretty amazing. This whole series has been a great idea. I've gotten a chance to go to, to three of the other campuses, other church plants, and, and to see what God's doing in each of those. Is just, it's just awesome. And uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, your team that came here, um, the Reyeses and Charlie and Eileen, Charlie's been like a second dad to me, and um, you know, Aaron and Kelly and the, you know, so many of the different folks that came. It's just been awesome. We're doing this series called Without Walls, and here's what we're really doing. We're, we're again trying to take on the issue of what does it look like to be a church biblically. One of the things that I believe about the devil is he loves to allow us to keep our words, our biblical words, but he slightly tweaks the definition. And when you allow the enemy to reshape the definition of the word, the word loses its power. For instance, faith. The Bible says that you're saved by grace through faith for good works, which God planned for you to do before time began. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and through 10. And the devil doesn't mind if you have faith as long as he switches and, and twists the meaning to something along the lines of intellectual assent. The devil doesn't mind if you believe there is a God and even if you believe Jesus is the son of God. He believes all of that. He knows that to be true. Faith isn't just intellectual assent to believe that God exists and that Jesus is his son. It's to place your trust in God. And so as you start to unpack what does faith really mean, the devil, again, he doesn't mind you having, I believe, he doesn't mind if you say that. He just doesn't want you to have the right definition of faith because he knows that's access to salvation, to grace, the church, the devil doesn't mind if you have a, a, a definition of a church that says it's a building you go to, it's not a group of people you belong to. He doesn't mind if you go to church. Devil has no problems. In fact, he, he would prefer that you would go to church, but slightly change the definition, because when you change the definition, the church, which represents God to the world, if you change the definition, then you misrepresent God. It loses its power. Not only for believers, but as a, as a bridge to those who are lost. 
If you have your Bibles, I want to unpack this with you a little bit. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter is writing to a church that, that scattered all throughout the world, all the, the Christians, and he's, he's, uh, they've planted the churches, Peter and to the Jews and as well as the rest of the disciples and, and Paul to the Gentiles, and, and he's writing to them because they're discouraged, they're, they're down. Some of uh, the people in the churches have started to go, you know, I'll, I'll sprinkle a little Jesus on my life and, and I'll, I'll try to get as much of the world as I can. Some are being persecuted and they're wondering, where is God? What's he got going on here? And they're, they're slowly but surely shifting away from God's idea of the church. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, that would be Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He's talking about temples. And to a Gentile, they, they got what a temple was, because if you go to all of the different major cities, they had temples to Zeus or to Apollos or, or, or to Diana, they, the, the Aphrodite. They had all different kinds of temples, and, and a temple was often massive and, and beautiful, and they had priests that would offer the sacrifices and teach the people, and, and so they had buildings they were called temples. The Jews understood this as well. Uh, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. Herod had built it. There are stones today that, that are almost as big as this room. Just one stone. Amazing. So the, the Jewish Christians understood this as well. And here's what he's saying. No longer is it about a building. Remember, Jesus had said, to the Samaritan woman, when she asked, should we worship here or worship there? He said, there's a time coming when you will worship in spirit and in truth. There will be a spiritual component that binds you together rather than about a temple that you go to. It's a, it's a spiritual connection, a spiritual temple that will be built where, where you worship together. And so as you go to this passage, he's saying, Christ is the cornerstone of the church, the, the, the weight-bearing stone. It, Paul added that the apostles were the foundation, their teaching, the word of God, and each of us are living stones connected together. Now again, a lot of people want to act as though it's them and Jesus and they are kind of a one stone that doesn't get connected to any other stone. They're kind of, you know, my church is the woods, it's me and Jesus, but, but Peter here is, is saying, no, that's not true at all. The Holy Spirit will bind us together. The word church, the word is ecclesia, the called out ones, people who are called out of the world and now are being formed into a spiritual body called the church, the ecclesia. If you have your Bibles, flip over to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church again, and he's just going to reiterate some of what Peter has already said and maybe say it in a little different way. And, and here's what he says to the, to the Christians. Once again, church has been started. God's been working. Paul's now somewhere else, and he's writing back to this church in Ephesus to remind them of who they are. 
Notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. There's that word calling again. You remember what the church, the word church means? It's what? The called out ones. Now he's saying you are called to something. So you've been called out of the world, and you're called to something. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, with, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Therefore, er, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, here's what, what's going on. See, the Christians come from a variety of different nations. They were told to go make disciples. The disciples were told to go and make disciples of all nations. And now these people who are living in a variety of different countries and nationalities and races and economic statuses, they're being brought into the church, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, Peter had said. A group of people that come together, knit together, built into a spiritual temple. No longer just a building, spiritually connected to one another. And he says, listen, though you come from a variety of different nations and different backgrounds and languages, he says there is one Lord in this new spiritual family, in this new spiritual kingdom. One king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is one faith, one gospel, one set of doctrines that you live under, one constitution, so to speak. He says there is one spirit, one baptism. He says, you, we are now one, a spiritual temple. This is so important, especially at a time when our nation here, most of us uh, who have been in this country for a long time, had somehow connected uh, America and God as if it were the same thing. As if America were a Christian nation. And certainly there, was there were times that we know that the Christians had a part in laying the foundation of this country and they were closely connected. But right now, as Christians have noticed the nation is getting further and further away from God, we get all freaked out as if this surprises God in some way. As if he goes, man, I didn't see that coming. Right now we got people that if their priority, their highest priority is America then they, they ought to be freaked out right now because the two choices we got is point, point, you know, poke me in this eye or poke me in that eye. I mean, that's really how I see it. Just which side do I want to get poked in? You ought to be freaked out if America is your number one deal. But it's not. We are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. We, we have a new nation, a spiritual nation. Now, if, when, you're, when you're part of the kingdom of heaven, that will make you a good citizen of whatever nation you're in. But as Christians, he's calling these people who, by the way, at that time, they didn't have the ability to vote. You couldn't vote for Caesar. Romans couldn't even vote. You couldn't wrote, vote for you know, King Herod or, or to the Jewish ruling council. That, was a, that wasn't even in their mind, but they still, they were being told to be confident that you are a living spiritual nation. Keep your priorities straight. And notice what he says here. Oftentimes we go to the, to the one Lord and one faith, and we, we look at the uh, uh, you know, one God and Father of us all, and we think about doctrines, and we think about spiritual constitution we call the Bible that binds us all together. But we forget 
This first part of that, we go right by it. Listen to this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Notice what he says. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the calling? Notice what he says. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient with one another. Bearing with one another in love. If you have your Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to spend the rest of our time here. And, and uh, let me just give you a little bit of a picture, some context to 1 Corinthians. Paul had started this church and now he's somewhere else. Most think he's in jail when he writes this letter. And he's heard all kinds of things that are going on in the church that he had started. These people have drifted a long way. As 1 Corinthians opens up, he starts out with saying, some of you are saying, I follow Paul, and some of you are saying, I follow Apollos, and some of you are saying, I follow Cephas or Peter. And he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were you baptized in the name of Peter? The obvious answer is no. In other words, the church has started dividing over preaching style and personality style. And somehow people have taken their eyes off of Jesus and started putting them on people. And he says, what are you doing? Notice the option wasn't, hey, break into three churches. There's the Paul church, the Peter church, and the, uh, you know, uh, Paul's church. Wasn't even an option. What he said is, stop it. That's not what the church is about. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. What are you doing? The next thing he deals with is these Christians have actually started fighting and, and, and started take, making lawsuits against one another. They're actually, as fellow Christians, going to the Romans to, to, to file a lawsuit. Because, and he says, listen, what are you doing? Shouldn't you rather be wronged? Then take a brother to court and, and ruin the reputation of Christ. You're blaspheming the name of the Lord. What are you doing? And then he says, you guys are fighting about communion. It's supposed to be about Jesus, but some people are hungry and they're eating it and they're just using it as their meal. And then other people are starving and it's not even about the Lord's Supper anymore. What are you doing? And then he says, some of you are actually fighting about whether I eat meat or not. Or whether I'm a vegetarian. Notice he didn't say, well, you know, the meat eaters get into a little church over here. And all the vegetarians, let's get into a church over there. He says, what are you doing? What is, what is going on? And then 1 Corinthians 12, he says, you guys are even fighting about who's got the greatest gift in the church. Well, I'm a teacher. Well, I'm a prophet. Well, I'm this. Well, I'm that. You're fighting about all of these things. What in the world are you doing? And then he writes 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to this. Love this passage. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I can speak the language of the angels, but I don't love people, I'm just annoying. That's what he's saying. He goes, he goes on, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but if I have a, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not love, I am what? What does that say? Nothing. Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship or to martyrdom that I may boast but do not have love, I gain what? Nothing. See, 
Here's the, here's the deal. Again, they've been fighting about all different kinds of things. Who's the best teacher? You know, uh, who's right and wrong about this silly thing and that thing? And who has the best gift and all that? And he says, listen, you can know all mysteries. You can know everything about the word. You can be so gifted that you can speak in the tongues of angels. You can follow all the rules. But if you don't have love... It doesn't mean anything. You see, there's all kinds of reasons you might follow the rules. You could be like the Pharisees, going, I've got to follow the rules in front of people. I've got to give my money away in front of people so everybody goes, wow, what an amazing person. So you could be doing it all for you, for your reputation. Or you might even be missing the point of the whole gospel. You, you, may, you may believe uh, that you have to do certain things to earn your salvation. You may be giving because you want to earn salvation. You may be following the rules because you, you've got to deserve it. That just makes you like the Muslims, the radical Muslims, who think by killing somebody in jihad, they go right to heaven. doesn't matter what they've done. The sure way to get to heaven, no matter how messed up your life is, is do something extreme. That, you may not be as extreme you may think by doing something super good you get to earn your way to heaven, but you don't understand the gospel then. The gospel is we do what we do because of what Jesus has done for us. We've accepted Christ. He paid all of our payment. We do what we do out of love for him and love for others, not, to, not because we're terrified of him. We don't need to be terrified of him. Jesus died for us and took the wrath of God. You don't understand the gospel if that's why you're doing what you're doing. He's saying, listen, maturity in Christ isn't what you know, although there's, he's not saying you shouldn't know the scriptures. He's not saying that. Of course, being mature means that you aren't learning the scriptures. He's not saying that you shouldn't give. Of course, because you give because you're growing up and you're loving God and loving others. You trust God more, so you know whatever you give, he's going to take care of you. You love his children, so you give. You want his reputation to be great, so you give. That's why you give. He's not saying don't give. He's saying the heart of love, the motivation of your heart, matters. Spiritual maturity isn't just what you know and what you can do. It's based in love. Now, this is so important because, again, there are, there are so many people that think they're mature because they follow the rules. They think they're mature because they know the word. They think they're mature just because they're skilled teachers. But they miss the point. I, I had a guy who, uh, in our area, he's notorious amongst all the pastors because what he does is he just goes around to different churches for periods of time and he teaches a Bible study class, a Sunday school class, and the church will let him come in and he'll teach a Sunday school class and he's seriously gifted. I mean, the guy is gifted. And so everybody just loves it. They just eat it up. And, and he's got a bunch of people that they go to church wherever he goes. And he'll come into the pastor and say, I'd like to teach your class. And I'm going to bring a bunch of people with me. And, uh, um, you know, they're givers and they'll participate in some way. And so th they do. They, f they say, sure, we'd love to have that. It's an instant way to grow the church, an extra 200 people. 
And so he'll go. But the problem is, is that he'll go to that church. Something will happen. There'll be a disagreement about a non-salvation issue. And, and, and there'll be a, an argument. And he'll just take up and he'll just go to the next church. And, and so I see him in church one Sunday. And I'm like, oh, boy. Next week comes. There he is again. He's got more people with him. I know what's going to happen. I get a little card. Will you meet with me? I said, okay. He comes in. He's, he gives me the spiel. We're going to have, you know, there's a couple hundred people in my class, and we'd like to, and I said, let me ask you a question. I know, for, I know for a fact there's four churches you've been to where you bring these people, then they go. You, something happens. What happens? Well, you know, they're just not very teachable. Or I got into an argument because the senior pastor was jealous. Our people weren't coming to the church service. They were coming to the Sunday school class. Well, what happened when that happened? Well, we got into a disagreement. We just couldn't see eye to eye, and we, when we left. I said, let me, let me tell you what would happen if you came to our church. Love to have you, but let me just tell you what's going to happen. You're not going to teach. You're going to go to a home group, and you're not even going to lead the home group. You're going you're gonna to love and learn to love and deal with conflict because conflict will happen because there's people there. When you're more known for your love and your humility than you are your teaching, then I'll let you teach. What do you think he did? He found a church where he could preach, where he could teach. And he's been to two other churches since then. You see, he thinks he's mature because he knows a lot and because he's seriously gifted. But his love for God and love for others is minuscule in comparison to his gifting. I want you to understand, Paul's saying to the Corinthian church and to us, maturity is love and relationship. Again, it's also knowing the word. The word, though, points to relationship. Jesus uh, said this, one day he was asked what's the greatest commandment and, he, and he, he didn't give them the answer they were expecting. He gave them two answers. He said the first one, the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said this, but the second is like it, to love your neighbors yourself. Now everybody always stops right there. They don't read what he said next. He said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know what that means? The entire Old Testament Everything that he's taught is summed up in relationship with God and relationship with others. They had missed that point. In fact, one time Jesus is uh, talking to the Pharisees and he says this to them. He says, you have strained out the gnat and swallowed the camel. Do you know what that means? You have completely missed the point. You know how many people have completely missed the point that the Ten Commandments, the first four are about relationship with God, the last six are about relationship with others? All of the scriptures is about God who created us to be in relationship with him. Relationship was lost, and he is a God who is a reconciling God, trying to bring God and man back together, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has called us to be peacemakers, relationship builders. He's called us to be amazing lovers of God and others. But sometimes all we are is 
amazing rule followers. Now again, the rules have everything to do with love. But you can follow the rules and be yeah, pharisaical. Just, I am, I've got the thou shalt nots down. I am known for what I don't do. And completely miss the point. I love what he says next. Go to verse four. It, and, and this is important because, see, he's just got done saying you ought to love God and love others. If you don't have love, it's nothing. And by the way, all the fruit of the Spirit is relational. The fruit of the Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit at work in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love. For who? Others. Peace with who? Patience with who? Kindness towards who? Gentleness towards who? If you're a Spirit-filled Christian, what is the Spirit leading you to become like Christ, who is the perfect picture of loving God and loving others? Now, he's just kind of made this point, but he says this. Love is something now. Why does he have to give us the definition of love? Well, because love is another one of those words that have been stolen. The devil doesn't mind if we say we love, he just slightly tweaks the definition. He says love is a feeling. It's lust. It's desire. It's you make me feel so good. Our culture doesn't understand what love is. And you know what? The sad part of this is so many Christians don't either. You know how many counseling times I've had to sit with people where somebody claims to be a Christian for years and they say something like this, I just don't love them anymore. I just don't love them anymore. They just don't do it for me. What's the key word in both those statements? I, me. It's a feeling, they say. Did you know the Bible says that in the end times there will be very difficult times and that people's God will be their stomachs? That word stomach means appetites or feelings. You want to know what the world's love will be like? It says the world's love will grow cold and people's gods will be their stomach. In other words, the word will lack its power. Love will be just a word that grows cold. It doesn't provide intimacy or connection or warmth. All it will provide is a feeling, and feelings come and go. So many Christians, we use the word love all the time, but we don't even understand what the word means anymore. And when the definition is tweaked, it loses its power. Listen to what he says. Verse four, love is patient. By the way, does anybody feel patient? I, I can't figure out how to feel patient. It says love is patient. You know, Philippians 2.12 says that it's God who works in us both to will and to do his good work. Where does it say it's God who works in us to feel and do his good work? The word is will. In other words, God gives us the ability to will, to choose. The word love is agapao in the Greek. It's an act of the will to lay down your life for the other. And it's God who works in us to give us the ability to choose love. Feelings come and go. It's based on what I ate, how much sleep I got. 
God gives us the ability to choose. Listen to this. Love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. When somebody says, I don't love you no more. You don't make me. That's, that's pride. You're, you just don't make me. I, and I'm the center of attention. You just don't make me feel good anymore. It's not proud. It's not self, it, 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 it does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It, notice it keeps no record of wrongs. It forgives. It's a grace-giving love. The same kind of love that God gives us. How many of you are glad God does not keep record of wrongs for believers? Did you know that the Holy Spirit working in us gives us to be, the ability to love the way God loves us? Notice, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes. Notice this word, it always perseveres. You know what that means? It doesn't quit. Another story. I had an old couple come, and uh, they had taken our 101 class, and they went to the 101 class, and they you got to sign a covenant, and they didn't like that. They, they were like, well, you know. They wanted to talk, so they came to my office, and, and uh, I, I do what I did, usually do. Tell me your church history, and they've lived in the Post Falls Coeur d'Alene area for 65 years, and, and their history, they'd been to 13 different churches, one time for 15 years, one time for four years, one time for eight years. I mean, you name it. They went, you could just, and I said as they were telling me, they, they mentioned that they'd been married for 50 years. So I, I changed subjects on them. I said this. Let me, let me ask you a question. You two, you've been married 50 years. That is so rare nowadays. Did you guys ever get into a fight? They both laughed. Of course. I said, well, what did you do? Well, Ephesians 4.29 says that you don't let the sun go down on your anger. So there were nights where we would stay up all night and fight Fight it out all night long. We would not go to bed. I was like, wow, that's really good. He goes, he goes, uh, he goes uh, you know, because Hebrews says that uh, you don't let a bitter root grow up and defile you and defile many. And I was like, yeah, that, that's true. Hebrews does say that. I said, well, did you ever feel like quitting? Did, was the grass greener somewhere else? Oh, we felt like quitting all, a, a lot over the years at different times. But scripture says, 1 Corinthians 13 says that love perseveres. It doesn't quit. I said, well, what would you tell young couples about love? Well, it's hard work. You've got to lay down your life. And he kept quoting 1 Corinthians 13. He kept quoting scripture. And, and so I finally got to the point after he had shared all this with me. I said, let me ask you a question. When you quote 1 Corinthians and, and, and uh, Ephesians chapter 4, you do know that those are texts not written to the marriage, but written to the, to the church. Why are you quoting scripture not meant for marriage? For marriage, I mean, it can be applied to marriage, but why are you quoting scripture not meant for marriage, but for the church, but you have not applied it to the church? So let me ask you a question. What would have happened if you'd applied the principles you've applied in your marriage to or to the, to, to the church, to your marriage, I said, you would have been married 13 times. I said, you know, the Bible does give us reason for divorce, but it isn't very many 
It's pretty extreme. We're called to be a holy nation, living stones bound together by the Holy Spirit. And yet, what does it say about your ability to love the body of Christ when you have no problem leaving one church to go to the other? What does that tell you about the relationships you built in that church? They must not have been very strong. If you can just do that without pain, if you can just move around, and so we started to unpack this. Of course, they got very quiet. And, and I would say this. I've been, I've been doing weddings for I don't know how many years, and they always want to read 1 Corinthians 13. And again, I, that's a great marriage text, but that, it wasn't, it's, that's not the context of 1 Corinthians 13. It was written to the church about how they should love one another about how they should work through issues. They, they, they should forgive one another. They fight for relationship. They carry each other's burdens. They confess their sin one to another. They are a holy nation, a temple, a spiritual temple that's meant to represent God to the world. You see, there's a reason why the church in America is on such a steep decline that everybody's freaking out. It's because we've taken the definition of church and tweaked it. And I want you to know this. God has no obligation whatsoever to bless your version of the church. Just like he has no obligation whatsoever to bless your version of marriage. He has no obligation to work in your version of the faith. He only has an obligation to work in his version of the church, in his version of the marriage, in his version of the faith. Let me, let me just close with this. There's great, amazing things that happen when you say yes to his version. I can just tell you this. My son, for instance, um, he was a, he went to two rehab programs and finally lived in a homeless shelter for months. He lost his mind because of drugs. It's the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life. My marriage, my, my wife and I, we just could not get on the same page about what to do. Should we get him out of jail? Should we leave him in there? Should we, it just, it was just. And I remember I would go to my friends at church and to my elders and to my staff and to Aaron, to Charlie. And I would just say, hey, here's where I'm at. And you know, they just blessed me. They just, they said, well, let me help you carry the burden, Jim. Let's talk through it. I remember I wrote my resignation to the elders because I just didn't feel worthy. And I went in and I said, guys, I just, I don't feel worthy. And, and, and my, my home is in just such a mess right now because of my son. So here's my resignation. They said, we're not taking that. You've helped other people and carried burdens with them and you didn't judge them. We're not judging you. We're a family. We do this together. You step back, we'll carry the load. We'll help you do this. They walked me and my wife through struggles. My son who was out there, he saw the way his dad and mom's church family treated him treated not only him, but us. And when his friends, his worldly friends, wouldn't be there to help him, wouldn't do anything to help him, he saw the people that came around my life and my wife's life, 
And he saw in our church family, family, which is why now he's a youth minister at a church. When Aaron mentions that I helped him in his marriage, I did, but he helped me too. And there was no pretending or putting on a face or how you doing, fine, fine, fine. It was, when it was fine, great. When it wasn't fine, I got your back. When you act like God's church family, now God works. When you pray, it's like, you know, when we're financially in trouble, you think you're going to be like the clampets and find oil in your backyard? God, God blesses you through people. He ministers and answers through people when we're a church family. And let me just tell you what it does for a lost world. In a world where they know they need relationship, they need it like water. But they can't find it because of sin, because they don't have the right definitions of words. They've been captured, the Bible says. When they look at people who actually have found what they know they need, real relationship, where they actually do life together and when you fall, you help them up and somebody will tell you the truth even when you don't want to hear it but love you anyway. When they start to see that, they're drawn to it. But you want to know why most non-Christians don't go to church? It's oftentimes because they were already there and they didn't see the answers there. Let me close with this. I really believe that right now more than ever in history, the church had better be the church as God defined it. Yeah, we meet together in buildings. That's a part of what Christians do. But the church is without walls. We do life together. And when we do, there's power. We just shut your eyes right now. If you've never accepted Christ, I want you to know that he loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. No matter what you've done. You're not here by accident. The scripture says that God draws people through a friend or just places it in your mind. But that, that voice, that little drawing means that God sees you, knows you, and he loves you, and he wants you. But you gotta say yes. He will not break down the door of your heart. You have to open it. For those of you who are Christians who've been hurt by the church, you can give in to your fear and to the enemy who will whisper in your ear. You can't trust anybody. You've already done that. It didn't work out. Or you can say, Lord, I don't expect the church to be perfect, but I'm gonna be a part of the solution. I'm gonna walk in there and try again with your help, Lord. Lord, thank you for the day. Thank you for this place. It's not a perfect place, but Lord, you're working here. People want to do what you want. When they don't, they want to say they're sorry and try again. I know that's what you're asking for. Bless this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from Real Life. If you have any questions or feedback about this message, send us an email at comment at liferotp.com. We'll be diving back into the Book of Romans next Sunday. Until then, be blessed and have a great week.